On this episode, the Cordon Bleu, Instant Pot vs. Crockpot, Good Poop, and probably a spy. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. We are very excited today to have Lentine Alexis with us. She is an ex-pro athlete and a chef, and she found her way to cooking, I believe, through her athletic pursuits. We are very excited to talk to her about her journey um, from being a professional endurance athlete to now chef, cookbook author, and all sorts of other great stuff. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So why don't you actually do a better job of introducing yourself? Why don't you give us a little <laughs> background about you? Well, that was, that was pretty good. Um, and, you know, this is a story that probably needs to be nutshelled a little bit because there's a lot of details and a lot of different nuances. But um, Severia, you're correct in that I was a professional uh, endurance athlete before I became a chef. And um, my, I had always been an athlete. My, I was a collegiate rower in college and swam from probably like before I could walk competitively. Um, but then was living on a small uh, island in the South Pacific, actually, when I sort of discovered my prowess with endurance and it was kind of at a point in time in my life when I just needed something to occupy myself and I fell into endurance sports. So I was racing ultra distance triathlon and adventure races and ultra marathons and multi-day stage races on the bike. And um, this was a, t- it, that occurred in a time when there were not quote unquote sport performance foods available in Japan, which is where we were living. Um, So I had to make my own food. And moreover, I had to unlearn a lot of perhaps uh, outdated myths about what sports nutrition was meant to look like to embrace uh, the culture and the cuisine that was available to me. So for example, you know, like a low fat, low salt diet that's low in carbs, which is sometimes popular, (laughs) is not a great idea, A, and B, was not something I would have been able to survive upon um, living in this place. So uh, so I, I lived there for five years. I really fell in love with the way that food and sport connected me uh, to the world and to myself. And by the time we left that island, I was um, pretty passionate with about the idea of def- continuing to defer my graduate education and in international development, actually, <laughs> and uh, going to culinary school. So I enrolled at Le Cordon Bleu and t- uh, spent a little bit of time bouncing around, finished my education in Portland, Oregon, and then found myself in um, a fine dining restaurant as a pastry chef in Los Angeles and was officially a, officially a chef. Um, I didn't stay in restaurants for very long because as it turns out that when you work from 10 a.m. to 3 a.m. Uh, making breads and candies and cookies and ice cream and chocolates, you have very little energy to go outside and play. <laughs> and so, uh, so I got a quick fire education in mass in molecular gastronomic cooking and fine dining, 
and then uh, left back into the sport world and have been working as a chef in the sport world ever since. And that's been about oh, 15 years now, not quite. That's like an eternity, you know, in that world, I would think. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. I don't know that many, I don't know that many other athlete chefs in that regard. <laughs> That's pretty fascinating. So I'm kind of curious. So you were a professional endurance athlete and at some point, you know, you kind of pivoted or, you know, you were doing, you know, creating your own food because out of necessity. And at some point you've said, well, you know, maybe I should mold that into some kind of a career. You know, wh where did that turning point come? Did you think that, I mean, you, you did, was it a leap that you took? Was it when you entered the Cordon Bleu, Le Cordon Bleu School Culinary Institute, or was it uh, something more gradual and you thought, well, let's try this out, I enjoy this, and let's see where it goes? How did that no, work? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, it was rather gradual, and it had everything to do with the way that real food was fueling me as an athlete. Um, I, as I meant, I think I mentioned, um, you know, I was a collegiate rower. We were an extremely successful team and my coaches had pushed me sort of into a, a particular relationship with food that may or may not have served me, but I was pretty... what, what was that relationship with food? I... <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of foods I was afraid of. To be super the, not eat, the not eating diet? <laughs> well, actually, it wasn't a not eating diet at that point okay. in time uh, because I am 5'5 five five and I weigh about 135 pounds. And as a collegiate rower, I was the smallest person in our boat, um, you know, to race at NCAAs by about over, over a foot and about 40 or 50 pounds. So what she wanted for me was for me to be heavier, stronger, more can-shaped. <laughs> And, um, and I was super strong and I was fit and all that, but, um, but it was just, a, you know, there were certain foods that, that didn't make sense to her and certain foods she would prefer that I not eat. And there was a lot of protein and there was a lot, you know, not a, not a great, I didn't really understand what my body, how my body was using the fuel I was putting in. And that created, that created the concern, right? I had no idea exactly what was going on, um, physiologically for me as an athlete and even as a young athlete and how that tied into nutrition. But I did know that I was hungry. <laughs> when I was you know, training and racing in Asia, I was hungry and that I was training something like 28 to 30 hours a week and I was craving things like big muffin tops and slices of cake and huge bowls of pasta and like lots and lots of calories. And that was something that would have been shunned in my varsity training. So I had to shed that perception and the more I would, you know, eat super flavorful onigiri rice balls that I would pick up from the convenience stores along the routes where I would ride or have big bowls of ramen or, you know, indulge in like fatty cuts of meat, like, you know, red meats and dairy products and dessert, like having dessert was something that was really not acceptable in this collegiate program. And the more that I allowed my body to eat those things, the more the better I slept, the faster I recovered, the better I felt as an athlete, the more proud I felt, the you know more my prowess expanded. And so for me, falling into that real food space was really about trusting my own instincts and listening to my body and not listening to the instructions that anyone else had for me about how I ought to fuel. And that was a massive, massive connection for me. 
that led me to not just be a chef. Like I actually wasn't interested in just becoming any old chef. I wanted to be a chef for athletes and I wanted to discover better ways of making the foods that I was really craving as an athlete. And, um, you, you couldn't just become a coxswain. That wasn't an option. <laughs> no, you had, to, no, okay. I, I, that was an option, but, um, but I actually grew up at altitude and, and yeah. I, I'm not blowing my own horn. I was actually too strong. to be a coxswain. <laughs> Oh, hey, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> it would have been wasted. It was so cool yeah. to have these great altitude lungs in this, like, you know, it's not, a, I'm not, I'm not, a, I don't think I'm a small person, but I was definitely smaller than some of the other, my other teammates. <laughs> and, and are you still competing? Are you still, do you still do? No, you're not competing anymore. <laughs> I don't compete anymore. Yeah. Um, but I'm, but I'm still really active and there, and while, you know, my definition of competition is that I'm just, I don't have a race calendar anymore. I don't plot my year around races cause I have, an, I have another job, <laughs> but I do still, I still ride as an ambassador for SRAM and specialized in Rafa racing and I've got a couple of big bike packing, bike packing adventures on my calendar this year that are technically races. And so I'll go and participate in those, although it doesn't bother me if I don't win. Uh, out of curiosity, since you mentioned bike packing races, what, what are the bike packing races on your calendar for this year? Yeah, the number one I'm looking at is I'm registered to do the Atlas race in Morocco in October. Um, it's a race that actually was, I was supposed to be doing right now, <laughs> um, but COVID has kind of pushed it off. So it's the first, it's a, frankly, the very first bikepacking event I'll ever have entered into. And so this summer will be about um, learning how to listen to my body on the road, cooking what I can out there because I'm not going to rely on energy bars and, and learning this whole other discipline of a sport that I've been doing for a really long time. Uh, that's the one Jesse did, I believe, right? We had yeah, a previous we actually, guest. Yeah, yeah, we had a guest. Yeah, who we had a, that. Uh, one of our former guests on the yeah. show, Jesse Blau, had had done that last year. I think just before COVID went broke, and so you know, he was kind of caught up in all that mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, it was a big deal for for the racers that was there, that were there because it literally shut the country shut down while they were coming home. Mm-hmm. I believe. Yep. So yeah, so so, so we that's learned. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. It'll be a great challenge and um, unlike anything I've ever done, but also like very much in the alley of things that I'm pretty familiar with. So how that's interesting. So with the whole real food, you know, because obviously like packaged food, it's easy, right? Especially when you're traveling, you take it with you, you just bring it. It's you can, you know, it's available. You throw it in your backpack or your suitcase. So how does that work when you're traveling? You know, like in some ways it's great, right? Because you can get fresh and natural stuff. So what is how are you going to be preparing stuff before you go combination of both getting stuff on your there? How is that going to work yeah, for you? Probably a combination of both. I did, um, I did a race called the Absa Cape Epic a few years ago, which is the eight day mountain bike stage race in South Africa. And on the same vein, like I really wasn't willing to consume packaged energy products just cause I don't like them and I don't know and, and didn't want to, especially for something that big. So um, in the days before the race, I, I sent over, this is kind of funny. I sent over a small Cuisinart, Cuisinart blender and made my own like, like fruit and nut bars and added the ingredients that I wanted to have. It took about 10 minutes. I wrapped them individually. I stuck them in my pack. Um, I carried things like almond butter and maple syrup and all of the aid stations had bananas and fruit and that sort of thing. So, um, I took my own like pre-mixed oatmeal which just helped actually, frankly, I think probably helped me from getting sick during the race. Cause that's something that was a plate of lots of racers. So I always knew it was going into my breakfast and then most of my lunch would be, or most of my day was in, enjoying these sorts of things that I knew really settled well with my stomach. 
Um, and then we were in a tent camp at night. So I had a little bit more understanding of what I could expect. And for Morocco, it'll be a little different because I actually am really fascinated by the cuisine there. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do uh, with some help from my sponsors is to spend a little bit of extra time in Morocco ahead of the race because I hope to learn how to prepare a few of the things that will be available to me in stores, not just the grocery, you know, not just the um, gas stations along the way, gas stations. There aren't necessarily gas stations in Atlas Mountains the same way that you might think of them in the United States, but refuel points um, can look like lots of different types of things. And I think I'll be pretty well set up if I can actually know what I'm looking at and how to prepare it with a simple camp stove. That I want to jump really back. Cool. Yeah, it sounds very cool. I want to jump back a little bit because you had mentioned earlier when you started that you got into a lot of your endurance sports post-college while living on a small island in the South Pacific. And so I want to, I want to understand sort of, you know, <laughs> seems that's all about, <laughs> right. What's that all about? How do you go endurance athlete on small Island? <laughs> yeah. My partner at the time was a special forces operator and he was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. And, um, we both were on the route to work in clandestine services. He had chosen a military route. I had chosen an educational route. And I deferred my my graduate education to go with him, which was the best choice still ever of my life. We That was his first duty station. So we moved to this tiny place. We decided we wanted to live off base. We rented a house in the middle of a sugarcane field, and it was very well positioned to swim and ride and run. And um, about 10 days after we arrived there, he was deployed the first time. And altogether, that happened quite often. So we lived on that island for almost five years. And and he lived there about a year and a half. So I had a lot of time to myself. And as it turns out, as a SOFA status member, which means that you're protected by the, the Armed Forces Agreement, you're not really able to get work that easily unless you're working for the military. So I had, I had a lot of time on my hands and I filled it with riding my bike up and down the island and training for marathons and swimming in the ocean and really learning this place and also learning a lot about myself because the challenges I was facing were larger than anything I'd ever can ever dreamt in terms, you know, from an emotional and a physical standpoint. Um, and training that way really helped me to buffer that amount of constant stress because he was in some really dangerous places doing some really dangerous things a lot of the time. No, you, so you were on the track to become a spy, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. What an a very fit life. one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of an interesting career path you've had. <laughs> how, yeah, how do we, like how do we know you're little... not one now? How do we know? Yeah, how can we right. be 100% certain? Yeah, exactly. Because you wouldn't tell us if way. you were. This would be a very like... good cover. Would you yeah, not agree? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something <laughs> encoded in that cover. recipe. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best cover ever. Yeah. So, so what do you think? you know and obviously someone that had bad nutrition and then you know figured out good nutrition what do you think are the biggest sort of misconceptions that people have or athletes in general specifically have about nutrition and what they should and shouldn't be eating yeah for sure so this has expanded for me a lot in the past few years because i um you know to caveat i'm not a nutritionist and i'm not a dietitian and i'm not an exercise physiologist and that's by choice um not because the opportunities to become those things was not available to me um, I am a student of Ayurvedic medicine. That's a program that I'm enrolled in currently. And that's a 7,000 year old system that talks a lot about food and balance. And um, a lot of those lessons have woven their way into my work over the past, past, you know, many, so, so many years. Um, I would say that the first problem that especially athletes have with respect to their nutrition is that we trust that someone else is going to give us the answer for what we ought to eat. 
And um, if someone were to ask, you know, if someone were to tell you like, I'm sorry, but this is as much prowess as you have. Like, this is as far as you can go as fast as you can run. Like that mountain over there is totally off limits to you. I would want to believe that any athlete would be like, oh, really? I'm sorry, but you don't, you don't know what's inside of me, which also is to say that they have no idea when you're hungry, how hungry you are, what, what's going to fuel you. And, um, and as a society, we've also kind of vilified our cravings, right? Sweet being the most, um, most important or most prevalent of those, right? When we have a sweet craving, we think that it's really bad. And as it turns out, especially as an athlete, that's a big hint that your body's asking for something that you need to put in. Um, so, you know, the, my, my first response is, is intuition. We don't trust our intuition enough when it comes to nutrition. And we, and we trust a lot of fads that sometimes take us in a really bad direction. Um, and I'll say the second, the second one is sort of in the same vein. And that is that we rely on packaged and convenience foods to fuel our sport. And we know as human beings that eating real whole foods in their most natural state is the best way to fuel our lives. But as athletes, we also don't lean into that. We sort of like eat a great breakfast and dinner, but then eat something from a package all the time. And um, I'm determined to prove that there's a different way of doing that. <laughs> uh, so those two things specifically, you know, uh, if you're going to, if you're going to live boundlessly, like you have to trust yourself boundlessly too. So, so in essence, you're, you're more focused on like creating people to create their own food, right? As opposed to like marketing, creating your own food and marketing it to people like as being a, a nutrition brand, you're more about, Hey, Go to the farmer's yeah. market, buy some fruit, buy some nuts or whatever, and make your own food. That's that's great. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Ultimately, I'm a vendor of recipes at this point. I could I can sort of see ways that I may be able to help people to make that more convenient because right now the best answer I have is I can give you really quick recipes that I've vetted myself on my own crazy rides and runs and hikes and explorations. But, um, but I, I think also I'm out to help people to understand that there's not such a thing as a good or bad food, that all foods that are, that are made of real ingredients are good and that they serve a lot of different types of purposes for us. And, um, and also maybe to do away with the word healthy because it means absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, what's healthy for me might not be healthy. Let's, let's, let's face it. Like racing eight day mountain bike stage races is maybe not healthy for others and maybe not be even healthy for me, but the idea that we would, suggest that if you can complete that thing that you're healthy is a little you know there's lots of ways to be unhealthy in that place too <laughs> so how do you when you're working with athletes and when you're working you know with specific groups um how do you figure out what those individualities are right how yeah. do you figure how do you figure out who needs more you know proteins or what you know food sense do you do food sensitivities like how do you really determine what that individual plan is yeah i mean ultimately the first question is like what's your body asking for and then let's watch what that is and let's track why it is. And um, it's not attached to what your body looks like. And it's also maybe not attached to your performance. It's attached to how you feel. It's attached to your digestion, how your digestion's performing. It's attached to how you're sleeping, those sorts of things. Like answering those questions with a lot of honesty can actually reveal a lot about what your body's actually doing, whether you're an athlete or just an average exceptional human being, right? And then we go from there and it's, and there are so many layers to the ways that our foods work that are far beyond macro nutrients. Like it's so much more than just like protein, fat, carbohydrates. It's also, um, what's your mineral level? Like how many minerals are you actually taking in? How much salt are you consuming? What about hydration and how many flavors are you consuming? Because the flavors of our foods actually provide nutritive benefit. It's not just for fun. 
flavors are the ways that we navigate the whole natural world to tell us which foods are important and how they provide different different things to us. If you think of like hunter gatherers way back in the day, we became drawn to the sweet fruits, not because they were the bad fruits, but because they were the ones that were A, safe and B, would nourish us for the longest hauls when we we're hiking for days to gather our food. So uh, recalling that we're of nature is really like what I would, what I challenge those individuals and those groups or anyone who I'm working to develop a recipe or a menu with. Leaning back into nature is what we do first. You were talking about you're in a program. I, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Was it Ayur, Ayurvedic? How, how do you? Yeah, Ayurveda. Okay. What is, what is, tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what does that entail? What, you're, you know, thousand, several thousand years old. It just sounds interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, similar to Western medicine, there are several not several, actually, there really aren't that many other medicinal systems, but there's a, the system of Chinese medicine, say, and there's also the system of, or the philosophy of Ayurvedic medicine, which is a philosophy that was founded in India, we think 5,000 5, years ago, we think 7,000 years ago, the transcripts of this philosophy were written in a language that's not dead, but is highly specific to that region. And they've been translated and, and um, tested now by clinicians and physicians and, um, it's a principle, it's basically like, how can I nutshell this? Ayurveda is the science of how all life functions. So not just the way that we function as human beings, but also the way that we interact with plants, the way that we interact with the earth elements and um, the ways that seasons and emotions and psychology and physiology all change our experience as humans. And it dives, it dives pretty deep into, and you can dive as deep as you like into, um, the like spiritual side of Ayurveda as well, because according to this system, you know, being able to align with the right earth elements and the right nourishment allows you to become enlightened, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's also it's also a practice though that you and and a, and a philosophy that you can plug it at any point and really see um, the prescience of how even thousands of years ago we knew a lot about the way that the world worked and the way that we worked in it. Uh, or the or the way we were part of it, and some of that some of that's gotten a little lost in our modern times. So ultimately, it's a it's really uh, my experience has been that the big takeaways are that food is medicine, that we are part of nature, and that those are really important things to lean into. Very cool. And and it's like, is it related to like the Vedic hymns? Is it kind of c comes yep. from that? Okay, yeah, like Indus. Totally. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Totally. That's the source yeah. of it. Oh, very cool. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. And yoga is a, is a concurrent philosophy. So yoga philosophy and Ayurvedic philosophy work together. They believe that different movements of the body instigate different energy channels. And so that, so you can dive super, super deep with in my own life and in the ways that this manifests in my work. It's really about the natural like ways that ways that science and nature sometimes compete and in being able to look at it through a food lens. So I'm not typically adding like mantras or anything to my recipes, <laughs> which isn't a knock at the science. It's more just to say that it's really approachable, even though it's it can be a little daunting and maybe like woo woo if you take a peek at it. Doing a little research on you, I found out that your secret weapon is the uh, the crock pot. Do you have a couple the of instant like pot. instant pot? I have, yeah, I have both. Do you have a couple favorite instant pot like recipes or what? You know, send us in the right direction. What, what should we be looking to do with it? Yeah, I mean, it's I'm a little well. I should say I'm not surprised, but um, I was shocked to find that I like using an instant pot as much as I do because I'm a chef and I know how to cook stuff on the stove. But I'm also a pretty full up person, so being able to 
use the instant pot like I was using it this morning just to make something make something really lovely for lunch. So I don't have to stand by the stove and I can frankly be testing recipes or doing whatever going on a big bike ride, whatever. Um, the things that I make in there are beans, like I make a lot of beans and it's the fastest way for me to guarantee that they're cooked well. And again, I don't have to stand over the stove. You can cook any bean in an instant pot. I add a bay leaf, a couple of black peppercorns, a pinch of salt, and then I can weave them into anything else I might be making. Um, I also make a lot of like doll stews or um, like kitchery, which is a which is a super soothing. Um, it's an Ayurvedic recipe, basically made with split yellow yellow bean, mung beans and rice and vegetables, and it's a great recovery food for if you're playing it out in the winter time. You know, whatever winter activity, it's really easy to digest, and um, and it's filled with all the you know carbohydrates, fats, and other macronutrients that you need to kind of just come back to baseline. Um, what else do I make in there? Sometimes I make soup, but usually I'll make the components of the soup in the instant pot and then put them all together on the stovetop, I would say. I do think the instant pots are, are made of magic because that's the only way I can explain how well they work. There's, there's, it's like a hundred dollars and you're like, once you get it and you just start doing things, it's like, it's incredible how well it works. (laughs) Yeah. And to me, it feels like I have somebody cooking for me in my house, which is wonderful. I see why people pay for this service. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually, to, to, to make a little statement about the difference between crock pots and instant pots, the thing that's so marvelous about an instant pot is that you can really cook precisely with it. Um, and it does matter how long your food is cooked and how precisely it's cooked. And crock pots don't typically have a setting where you're able to identify what it is that you're cooking. And so it basically just cooks until you stop it cooking. Um, so if you're out there and you're considering which to purchase, definitely p- purchase an Instant Pot, says me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say about, I'm about 90-10, 90% Instant Pot, 10% Crock-Pot. I, I, I don't know, if we haven't gotten into whether or not you eat meat or not, but I do find that if you're doing like a roast or like a something like that, if you do it in the Crock-Pot, it is a little better than it is in the Instant Pot. Maybe I'm missing something, but that is something I found. Yeah, um, it just depends on how you make a marinade, yeah. I think, or how you braise it in the Instant Pot. It's, um, you know, the crock pot isn't going to create so much steam or pressure, so you don't have the same evaporation. And it's true that if you're if you're kind of, if I'm, if I were, if, I don't actually have a crock pot at this point in time, but um, if I'm home and I'm just, I know how about how long to babysit it, then it's great and it works wonderfully. Um, I also just use the oven. Yeah. Well, you can actually slow cook in the in the Instant Pot as well. Which yeah. I've never actually tried. I just feel like I have this giant thing in my cupboard, yeah. and I, I might I should at least use it every once in a while, right? You know, otherwise, why is yeah. it why is it taking up half of my 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 pantry? Yeah, totally. So I have a question, Lenti. You know, for somebody who is listening to this podcast and is like, "This is awesome. This is great. Whole Foods, totally on board." Time, right? I mean, you just talk like Instant Pot's like one like shortcut. Um, you know, it feels like a lot of times the reason we default to the processed foods, to the Trader Joe's prepackaged whatever, is just because of ease, because of time, because we don't have time. So what would be some of your recommendations for somebody who wants to sort of try or transition into this sort of eating lifestyle to, you know, that, to have it not be overwhelming and feel scary? Mm-hmm. Especially totally. if you're not a cook, not a cook, and I'm raising my hand for those who can't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that um, if you're not a cook, it's okay. There are a great number of uh, you know, at one point in time, and um, 
I consider myself to be a person who really supports women doing whatever it is that they dream of doing. But the truth is that when women got the opportunities to go to work, we didn't actually have have like a schedule for how we were going to pass off all the things that women were doing at home. And that includes doing a lot of the cooking. And some of that's been picked up by our male counterparts or by other individuals, but there are a lot of us that are still learning how to cook and, and who might never learn how to cook. And that's totally okay. These are our modern times. So the first thing is to not beat yourself up about not knowing how or feeling like you're not great at it. And then the second thing is that starting really easy with a couple things, aiming to make yourself dinner X numbers of nights a week and um, or lunch, whatever, or breakfast, whatever meal it is that you, you know, want to start taking kind of control of and then set yourself some goals for saying, I want to try this new recipe that's simple. I can see how this fits into my life. And, and maybe getting yourself a couple of, of um, devices, you know, like we're talking about the Instant Pot. The Instant Pot, go, especially in the wintertime, goes a really long way to having like food, simple food. And, and this dives into understand, coming to understand your intuition. The more simple your food is, the fewer the ingredients it has, the more you know how it makes your body feel. So if you're maybe curious about how to retap your intuition and you're not sure how your performance is doing with respect to your intuition, choosing really simple foods eggs and toast, you know, a bowl of beans and rice with some vegetables on top. Like we have kind of gotten obsessed with ingredients and like so many recipes out there have 15 or 20 different ingredients and we don't know how to use them. And then we don't cook because we don't have all the ingredients that we think we need. So, so making yourself something super, super simple, leaning into devices that can help a rice cooker is another one that I use all the time, just to have a couple staples that prevent you from meat. You know, anything can be added to rice to make it a great meal. You could buy a rotisserie chicken at the store. You could make a pot of beans. You could add an egg. And all those are things that are simple and nutritious and excellent fuel for athletes and also don't come from a package. Just recently, I've been seeing some, speaking of rice, uh, because you brought it up, um, I've been seeing some like debate over which is healthier because forever the common wisdom was that brown rice was healthier now I'm now there seems to be some backlash against that, and now everyone is saying that white rice is better. And I think I heard an example where they mentioned that, you know, like the the, the Japanese, the, the Chinese, the people that you know ate rice got rid of the that husk or got rid of that for a reason, right? And that it's, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's all either yeah. is fine? Do you have a do you have a, a stance on that? Well, let me first say that there that uh, to blow your mind even more, there are different times of year and different reasons why you'd eat all the different rices. And eating the right one at the right time is actually a great thing to know, but it's quite complex. That said, the reason that you would choose a white rice, like a sushi rice that has, you know, let me back up really quickly and say that there are some like, there are hundreds of varieties of apples. They all have different virtues. They have slightly different tastes. Their skin textures are slightly different. The colors of their flesh are a little bit different. Some you might choose to use to make a pie. Others you are less inclined to do that. And that's the same with rice. All rice varieties are different. There's no better or worse. They did not spring from nature because one was going to be the bad guy and one was going to be the good guy. They all, they grow in different conditions. They have different virtues and, and eating a variety of them is great. So sushi rice is not, sushi rice or like white rice, basmati rice, they're not stripped of their bran or their nutrients. They're still whole grains in their perfect state. Um, however, um, Basmati rice has a higher propensity to maintain moisture and absorb moisture than a brown rice variety does. This is because it, brown rice contains slightly more bran and that bran holds on to more of the moisture and makes it less digestible for us. Sushi rice has more starch and that's why it sticks together to make these amazing, you know, onigiri rice balls. 
So, and, and because of that extra starch, that's a really powerful ingredient for athletes and active people to recognize because when we're in motion and fueling our bodies with glucose, no matter how many carbohydrates you consume, your body will take all of your food and convert it to glucose. Um, that's a very easy way for us to upload a little extra and it's easily digestible because it can, it also holds a lot of water more than brown rice does. Um, something else to know about grains is that the more individual they are, the more that those grains dry up your system and don't lubricate it the same way in different seasons, that's more important than others. So say quinoa is more astringent in its flavor than sushi rice, which is sweet. And depending on your own constitution, astringent flavors are really important and really, and really potent. And, um, you know, in other times of year, like right now I'm choosing to eat sushi rice and basmati rice, sometimes brown rice, but usually not. And when spring arrives and I'm looking for more astringency and bitter flavors, I'll eat more quinoa, maybe amaranth, brown rice, and leave some of that sushi rice behind. Cool. Sorry, that wasn't a very easy answer. No, that was great <laughs> though. That's cool. Though. I honestly, <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> so now, uh, yeah. it's not only is it brown rice or white rice, but it's all the different varieties of rice. And, and is the it season. the right time of year? You know, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the ultimate takeaway is that it's fine. It's all yeah. fine. The subtleties of how, you know, if you're work, if you are having some type of dis-ease in your body or you're having some kind of significant effect, a, you know, a practitioner can help you navigate your grain choices. And if not, then don't worry about it. Enjoy what you like. Enjoy what's interesting to you. Eat a wide variety of things and try lots of stuff. And we talked a lot about like how foods affect different people. What are your thoughts on sort of like the food sensitivity tests or, you know, prick your finger or find out what things, you know, your body reacts to? Are those like valid? Is it like a good place to start for somebody or, you know, yeah. Yeah. I will say that um, the way that we combine our foods has a lot to do with our sensitivities to them. So, um, for example, eating cheese with really pungent ingredients is going to make the cheese make you feel like you're upset. It's not cheese's fault. It's just that those two things combine in your body in a certain type of way. Gluten is one of those things that many people are becoming more and more sensitive to that depending on the type of grains that you're eating or where the flour is being sourced from, like you'll have a greater sensitivity or not. So I myself don't have any sensitivities. My mother, however, has Hashimoto's and she's sensitive to lots and lots and lots of things. So it's, it's tough for me to say whether from my own experience, whether or not the sensitivity test works. Cause I really, I do notice for myself that in different, again, different type, different seasons, um, the ways that I'm combining my food, the amount of stress I have, or the amount of exercise I'm doing. If I'm, if I'm riding or running or moving around a lot and I'm eating, um, I'm eating things that warm my body up, uh, pungent foods, too much like ginger, too many like spicy foods, almost anything I eat is going to upset my stomach and it's not gluten and it's not dairy. And it's, and my indigestion or like my breakout has nothing to do with gluten or dairy. It has everything to do with the life that I'm plugging dairy into. So I feel like it's a combination of things, right? I don't, I would say that a sensitivity test can help you get on the right track, but also listen, you know, really listening to your own body. And it, again, if your sleep is still not great and you're cutting out something that your sensitivity test says that you should avoid, or if your digestion is still really upset, we could do a whole show on like good poop. <laughs> I was just going to say, yes, yeah. I was going to ask, so you mentioned sleep a couple times. Like, so for somebody who's like, okay, like my body's reacting, like, 
I know, like, yeah. so what are the things, you know, sleep is, you've mentioned a few times, we just started talking about poop, digestion. Like, yeah. when you say digestion, <laughs> I mean, poop. Um, is it, like, bloating? Is it, like, all the things? Um, you know, so, like, yeah, what are, what are things yeah. that may yeah, seem if, obvious, but, like, maybe That we not. ignore. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you're bloated, if you're farting a lot, if you have diarrhea, like I know lots of professional runners that are pretty used to having diarrhea all the time. Um, yeah, your poop doesn't want to be like that. Your body definitely doesn't want to poop like that. Um, if you find yourself waking up many times in the night and unable to go back to sleep, or if you're exercising a lot and eating, you know, like complete meals, but you're still like having something restless, there's there's a combination or something that's, that could be all, you know, and it could be a variety. It could be lifestyle things. It could be food things. It could probably is a little of both. I know for myself, I like, as a, as an example, use my own Guinea pig. Um, I even, even after I became a chef and have started to understand a lot of these different types of things, still watch my body's patterns. Right. And when I'm moving around too much, or I have too much motion or too much stress. Um, even I'm eating really, really virtuous things and cooking everything myself, like, I notice greatly when my digestive goes system goes off or I just feel super bloated or gassy. Right. And then, um, and then I have to fix something or slow something down. And usually it's both like, that's the time when I know I haven't recovered properly or I haven't created the balance of like sport and life and pressure and food. I haven't combined that cocktail the right way. First of all, let me just say, this is my favorite conversation we've ever had. Poop, <laughs> farts. This is, this is fantastic. This is, this is, <laughs> podcast gold right here um, <laughs> no um one question i kind of go back just a little ways and kind of talking about gluten because it's obviously been something that has been so vilified and again in recent years and kind of like maybe the brown rice white rice debate and all that um do you think that there's it's a difference in say maybe the way wheat is cultivated or that that you know it's 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 delivered to us you know versus how it was say 50 years ago because you know, or even like peanuts, for example, right? I mean, I didn't know anyone that had a peanut allergy when I was a kid, but now like, you know, all these poor kids have yeah. like life-threatening peanut allergies. I mean, do you think it's that, I guess some of them aren't exposed to it, that's part of it, but do you also think that there's a different way and that they're cultivating the peanuts and that's kind of affecting, you know, mm -hmm. health, I guess? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, all those things. And I can speak to all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, when our food economy became industrialized, we picked certain crops and tried to increase their yield so we could feed more people for less. There are a variety of different reasons that that happened in our food economy. Um, some of them are good, but we also didn't know why they would be bad. And flour and grain, specifically wheat and a specific type of wheat was one of those high crop, high yield crops that we've totally changed the way that nature would intend it to be cultivated and harvested. And most of what happens is that we, we, to make it bleached, to make it white uh, and have this lovely mouthfeel that makes like pretty wonder bread that we all still have in our minds as being, you know, quite luscious. Um, we stripped it of its gluten and we bleached it a specific color. And then we, and, and we added some of the, some of the protein back in, but, for most industrialized flowers, like the stuff that you can buy at the grocery store, there's very little of that still available. And our bodies don't digest the starch very well without the protein. We need we need the grains intact. <laughs> we need and not stripped apart and put back together again. Like the sum of those things, like the 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 return sum does not equal the original whole. Um, 
And so many, many, many people find who are who have gluten uh, sensitivities that when they switch to eating uh, a grain flour that's been harvested, it's first of all been grown in small quantities with regenerative practices, because because the way that that industrial practice happens is that we basically have a wheat field, we grow the wheat, we harvest it, we plant it again, we grow it, we harvest it, we plant it again. And so there's not many nutrients in there either. So the minerals that help us to digest all those, the beautiful things that are meant to be in flour are also not prevalent. So when we consume grain flours that are grown in organic and regenerative conditions, basically means that we're taking good care of the soil. Most of those gluten sensitivities, just sensitivities, if you're celiac, it's different, but if you just think you're sensitive to gluten, Usually you can consume that type of wheat and those types of grains and that gluten because it's in its natural package as nature intended us to consume it. And uh, with respect to peanuts, uh, there's still a lot of pieces about peanuts. I, I'm a pastry chef by trade, so I understand flour super, super well. One thing I do know about our industrial peanut economy <laughs> is that the nuts themselves are exposed to a lots of fungus. And some research would point to the fact that we're not actually allergic to the peanuts, we're allergic to the fungus that that is imparted upon them as they're traveling across the country to wherever they're meant to be. And so, yeah, small batch peanuts, small, find a small organic farmer that's growing peanuts in your neighborhood. <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners, you know, they're, they're all, you know, doing things outdoors, whether it's on their bike or on their feet or on boards or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, you, you get up in the morning, you know, you, you, you do, you have some breakfast, some coffee or whatever you do and you head out and you're gone all day and, uh, and you get back in the evening and, you know, you go for that celebratory, you know, beer and a slice of pizza or something, but in the middle, you know, you've got to fuel yourself. And I know we've talked about this earlier, but, you know, my kind of go-to is to do the convenient thing and, you know, grab a bar or two and some a piece of fruit maybe, you know, but what would be your suggestions for some good things to, for us to sort of integrate into those day-long adventures that we do on the weekends where we are away from a store and a kitchen, but we want to be able to eat right? Totally. That's a great question. And I think a lot, I think you're right. I think a lot of athletes struggle with that because it's sort of like, well, what do I put in this place? Um, the first thing I'll say is make sure you eat a great breakfast, have, have some vegetables, have some protein, you know, have like, we love to make oatmeal here or we do toast and eggs and, you know, like sauteed greens or something. And then, um, then there's so many different things you can take with you. So many things. Um, I have quite a few things listed on my website, which are make at home snacks, but, but if you're not going to cook something, a few ideas are make yourself a nut butter and jelly sandwich or a nut butter and honey sandwich. That's a super easy go-to. It just means I don't eat that for breakfast. Right. Um, I would take like, I take cookies, cookie, like most of the time when I'm eating a cookie, I'm eating it if I'm on the trailer on a bike ride. And so I keep cookie dough in, whenever I make cookie dough, I basically like roll it up into a log and keep it in the freezer so that I can pull a log out anytime. I just double batch it. And then I have cook, I take about 10 minutes to bake a cookie, which is far better than pulling a, you know, energy bar out of the, out of a package. Um, I take a lot of dates with me, like just med jewel dates. Sometimes I stuff them with nut butter. Sometimes I coat them in chocolate. Like, especially in the winter, there's a recipe on the website for that. If I'm backcountry skiing, say, or I'm a place where I'm going to be taking a backpack and it's a little bit cool outside, 
I've started taking miso soup, which you can buy amazing organic packets of miso powder that have seaweed in them. You dump them into hot water and you have instant soup. And then to even make that more fantastic, you can drop noodles into the, into the hot water that will cook while you're moving. And when you stop, you have, have soup and noodles to drink or like any type of smooth soup. So uh, we do a lot of backcountry skiing and uh, I'm somewhat notorious for taking like butternut, butternut squash soup or tomato soup or any type of broth. Yeah, cheese. You can take slices of cheese and crackers um, or like hard salami is a great thing. Like, like pieces of fruit, apples, carrots, bananas, oranges, all those things are in their natural package and you can eat them anywhere they don't need any cooking great suggestions all of them and i am i have been kind of like browsing through the recipes on your website you know so i think we're going to probably try some of those as well like the date bombs look the bomb you know (laughs) Um, the date bombs are so good they're really they're so good (laughs) there's another recipe on there too which might be a little bit hidden and um and i make them all the time and uh this is also a great go-to especially if you have a rice cooker or if you're you know, uh, when I, I was the culinary director at Scratch Labs for some time and so have a history of making, I don't know, in the thousands and thousands and thousands of rice cakes, which are sushi rice that you would mix with um, basically all six flavors that our bodies can perceive, right? So we would add rice vinegar, some Bragg's liquid aminos or soy sauce, a little bit of maple syrup, a little bit of salt. Um, you could add like a little bit of lemon zest or, or, sea, or like crumbled up nori seaweed or sesame seeds. And basically the sushi rice, if you, you need to have fresh rice to do this because the starch of, and the steam are worked together to create a sticky onigiri ball, basically like the ones that I would eat when I was riding around in Okinawa. Um, you can package it up in aluminum foil or parchment paper, or if you have like a little container, you could carry them with you. They're a marvelous, very digestible snack that's easy to port and, um, and they keep quite well. And so that's another thing too. That you can always take and i think there's there are a couple of recipes for rice cakes on the website as well cool one I of them with bacon and almond out. butter ooh. yeah <laughs> ooh, yeah you had me at bacon right there <laughs> <laughs> um so as a pastry chef i mean obviously you have all this training do you would you still do you still make like say a croissant for yourself or like a cake or- yeah yeah i still i still really really love taking you know i think i mentioned one of my original inspirations for wanting to wanting to study cook you know wanting to be a professional cook was that I had all these cravings for cakes, cookie, you know, I was, I was completely depleted. I absolutely needed a slice of cake. (laughs) Um, And I still love, I still love baking. I don't, I don't notice myself craving all the things I bake as much as I used to. For me, I think it's mostly, I love the process. I love sharing them. I love showing up at the trail with like slices of carrot bread or banana bread or something, which are also great trail snacks. it's kind of a ritual that at some point in time during the week, I'll make something that we can take with us when we're going wherever we're going to play, which is many days. Um, and I love making croissants. I, I make croissants. Well, actually, I've recently returned to making croissants because uh, it's a little trickier at altitude and I'm using heirloom grains now. So uh, the heirloom grain, the heirloom flour uh, performs a little bit differently than a flour that I might buy at the grocery store. So it's taken a little bit of tweaking, but I love it. I love that process. And croissant is a great trail snack it's you're a very particular person to take a made croissant on the trail but i'm okay being that one (laughs) and and sorry just just out of random curiosity you said you worked as a pastry chef at a restaurant in la since either we live in la or we formerly lived in la i've I've just been curious this whole time which restaurant did you work at yeah i was at providence 
on Melrose. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been there. I've been yeah. there too. Yeah. yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. We had an eight, we they still have an eight course dessert tasting menu, and um, it is was that, really is that enough. I don't mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you might be surprised. Yeah. No, I... <laughs> yeah. It was a wonderful place to be, and I um I in some respects I wasn't there long enough, and in other respects it was the right amount of time for me. But it's a it's a wonderful place. Lentine, um, you you've been talking about all these amazing recipes and stuff. You have a recipe recipe club, right, where people can yeah. get the recipes. Tell us, tell me more yeah. about that. I do have a recipe club. So, um, the recipe club is, I think it's, I think it's cool. It's, it's basically it's a subscription only club. As a member, you get a a recipe from me every single week that only appears on the website, and and I write lots of recipes for lots of different places, lots of different entities, including my own, my own website. But, um, you know, I'm working with private clients. I publish, uh, recipes on myfitnesspal.com for that matter. Um, I write recipes for backcountry. I'm sharing recipes all over the place, but the recipes that are shared with the recipe club only go to the recipe club. And they're usually coming with some kind of little conversation about why it is that the recipe fits into my life. Um, and how it's a great recipe for specifically athletes and active people that are looking to cook more. So for example, just today, um, Recipe Club received a recipe for sourdough cheesy crackers, which is a great trail snack. Um, you don't have to have a sourdough starter to make this recipe. You just, I, I created a hack so you can make it with just flour and water or milk if you really wanted to. And um, yeah. And, and, and they also received, and they do from time to time, receive a special discount from one of my partners across the outdoor industry or in the food industry. So today, um, those folks all received a discount on a company here in Boulder that ground, grinds their own heirloom flowers so people can feel inspired to try a couple of those products and see if they notice a difference in their own cooking and baking. And I, I guess I should add that you're typically, like, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll, you'll see the recipes that are posted specifically for Recipe Club. And then I always link the, the club is run on Patreon. So you can go to Patreon, you can sign up, and then the, then the recipes get dropped directly into your, into your inbox. Or you can interact on the, on the, plat, the Patreon platform where there's a couple other things going on. Questions, like weekly questions, that sort of stuff. So let me just ask, I drink a lot of coffee. Is that okay? I'm just, I just want to know. You know, I, I, it is okay. Okay, good. good. It, I thought it, wanted, change, it wasn't going to change yeah. anyway, but I just, I just wanted to know how much guilt should I, shame should I yeah. absorb based okay. on my very large coffee consumption? Um, the timing, the timing can be probably for all of us a little better, but coffee is coffee has a lot of good benefits. Like the pooping we were talking about earlier. <laughs> Back to poop. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, I think one of the things that I'm hearing you say, Lentine, is that there's really not a bad food. It's about like listening to your body and kind of being in tune with what you need and finding that right balance. And that's going to change depending on your activities, your stress, you know, what's going on around you, your life, your sleep, everything else. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, I really like that idea. I think the practice of that probably is something that takes practice, right? 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's, as an athlete, you know, as an athlete or as the, you know, your audience are, are all sorts of people who are doing all sorts of really badass things that are probably involve a great amount of self-trust and, um, and risk. And as it turns out, there's no risk to trusting yourself and like diving a little bit deeper, but it's also the hardest thing you'll ever learn to do, which is which is tune out all the other voices 
and listen to your own voice, but um, I promise that it's worth it. And, and what you say is what you're suggesting I'm saying is true and that there aren't any good or bad uh, inclinations and there aren't any good or bad foods, but we usually know, right? Like we usually know for example, Jason, like you asked about the coffee, right? If you're like, I drink a lot of coffee and you're, you know, or like, I'm not like, I have friends who are like, I don't know how you can be a pastry chef and like be around all that stuff. Cause I would eat the whole cake. We know that that's not something that our bodies actually want, right? Like to fill your body up to the eyeballs with cake, like, you know how that's going to make us feel. So that, that's a, that's not a good inclination. That's not a good trust. There's something else. Maybe it's a hug. <laughs> maybe it's a walk around the block. Maybe it's, maybe it's a break, whatever it is. There's so many other, you know, asking ourselves what it is we're getting from that thing. And, and, you know, for that matter, Jason, a lot of people have an issue with coffee where we use it to re-stimulate us when maybe what we need is just a nap. And we'll probably feel better about just taking the nap instead of drinking an extra cup. And it's hard to turn that off, right? Like there's many things that like, like increases like, right? Like I love chocolate. I eat chocolate every single night before I go to sleep. I don't have any negative responses around it at this point, but if I was eating like a lot of chocolate at night, I, w I probably would. And my body would tell me that, or my brain would tell me that. The, the hard thing with that is like, like clients and bosses frown upon naps and they don't really frown upon <laughs> coffee. So that, that's the challenge. That's we, need to we need to shift the whole society to be pro nap, a little more pro nap. I love pro naps. Pro nap would be rad. Yeah. Right? Pro and, pro and now that I'm at rad. home working like everyone else, it's like, well, I'll just go take a nap cause I can get away with it. You know, a little harder when yeah. you're, you know, working in a, you know, in the, in the, in the client's place, you know, or on site. Yeah. I'm also a horrible napper. <laughs> Hopeless napper. <laughs> There's got to be some bad foods, though, right? Like like cheese Whiz. Cheese Whiz is bad, right? There's got to be some bad foods out there. <laughs> yeah. So so here's the, here's the way that you can basically trust, right? Like good, good foods, truly good foods, uh, great foods are made with ingredients that you recognize, all the ingredients that you recognize. If there's something on that list that you don't recognize or you're not sure that it's actually a food, that's something I would suggest steering away from. Although even, you know, my Ayurvedic pr practitioners and professors are like, sometimes you eat Burger King. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. But in general, like, you know, when I say there are no bad foods, it's trusting that what we're talking about is actually food. And there are a lot of products that are available to us that unfortunately really aren't food. And they, they, they have a specific, um, you know, like I think of Oreo cookies as one and not to vilify Oreos They're especially among like endurance cyclists. They're super popular. There's something that's like ridiculously craveable when you get to a gas station, it's like, Oh, Oreos. And I, I, I know too much about Oreos to befriend them at this point, but there's a lot of non-food things in there. So, yeah. So kind of on that point, you know, uh, people who do long through hikes is a great example you know, one of the strategies for resupply is you, you know, you go into town, you, into, into Lone Pine or whatever you're hiking the PCT and you, you raid the local 7-Eleven or whatever convenience store and you just kind of go through the, the shelves and you're trying to pick things that are going to get you through the next four or five days. What do you do in that situation? Because I, I don't know, I'm, I know somebody who might be in that situation, not this year, but maybe next summer. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is carry what you can, right? But then when you find yourself in a in a gas station, like most gas stations have, if you have a if you have a way of boiling water, that's super crucial. So, you've got ramen. Usually they sell pickles in there. Usually they sell fruits or vegetables. Like you can often find eggs. You can often find um, 
like the, the, the stuff in the ramen packets that gets really tricky are the spice mixes. So if you've got a little spice mix, that's probably already in your cooking kit in your backpack. You can mix up your own spices or you could add miso broth or, you know, that miso powder I was talking about. Um, usually you can find nuts. Usually you can find dried fruits or like trail mix. Um, I've been in some really nice gas stations where you can also find like, like, um, in, like rice packets that have, you know, trying to avoid the spices that usually have the preservatives in them. But if you have to eat boil and bag rice or whatever on the trail, like sometimes you're going to make exceptions, you know, but, um, and ultimately like if your body's like, I need Oreos then just eat the Oreos. <laughs> you're probably not in that situation all the time. What if your body always wants Oreos though? Like what if like your body is constantly <laughs> telling you, give me yeah. Oreos. <laughs> yeah. Then, then, then you get to pick. Because you can either keep eating the Oreos or um, you can lean into why your body might be asking for Oreos all the time. Totally up to you, though. It's like the old Steve Martin joke where he says, yeah, I'm thinking about taking up smoking because my doctor <laughs> says I'm not getting enough nicotine in my in my diet. So, yeah, uh, yeah. which no doctor any nowadays <laughs> anyways would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, there's no, there's really, there's no right or wrong. It's just whatever you pick. Right. But there, but I do think that most people who really honor their bodies, honor the adventures that they want to go on and the possibilities of those adventures feel best when they're putting in really great fuel. And it can look like all sorts of different types of things, sometimes Oreos, but we all want to be our, we all want to do the best we can. Right. Well, I think the other challenge that you're faced with on something like a long distance through hike is that you're typically running a caloric deficit on a day-to-day basis. And so when you do go into town, you kind of, you know, you go into hibernation mode, you know, you're like consuming as many calories as you can can. and, and, and looking for high calorie things to, you know, nut butters and things like that, that you could take. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not, it's kind of a good problem to have in some respects, but it is a challenge and it's different than, you know, when I'm at home, I'm sitting in front of a computer for maybe hours at a time. And, you know, I'm, I, if I get outside for a hike, that's, that's a, that's a little lucky extra. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, so when I was working at Scratch Labs, I worked, um, I consulted on a, one of our, a special project for an explorer named Eric Larson, who does big Antarctic expeditions. And one of his complaints was that he couldn't find fuel that would, that would last him long enough. So we started playing around. We, I, we never actually turned this into a product, but I still have a recipe for it. And and as a hint, we played around with a recipe that basically was a super, it was a caramel. It's a super new calorie dense caramel that contained nuts and made was made with butter and, and used sugar. And this, we were able to actually figure out how to dose it so he would know how many calories and how many, you know, fat calories were in each square. And, um, and it was never going to, it had enough fat that it wasn't going to freeze. So he was able to consume it or or hypothetically was able to consume it. And it was just recognizing what, you know, how to stack his backpack with things that were, that didn't require, didn't require cooking and could be kind of like, cool, instead of me stopping to make lunch, I'm going to continue eating this like really great clean food. That's giving my body exactly what I need. You're still going to run a calorie deficit, but, um, but that was a that was a cool practice. Let me know if you if you run into anybody who needs a super super calorie dense fat dense caramel. I know how to do that. <laughs> um, I might hit yeah. you up. 
This is a, this is kind of like a billion dollar question, but obviously everyone sort of everyone you know responds to food differently, right? Some people can eat anything they want and never put on a pound. Some people like me smell bread and they put on weight. So it's kind of like, what do you think is sort of the root cause, or what do you have a theory on what the difference is, or why people's bodies are different or respond differently? Or did or did yes. the did, did it, the in India five thousand years ago did they have an idea, uh, you know, to yeah. answer this? <laughs> yeah. Yes, they do have an answer for this. Then the first thing is that every one of us has a different constitution. And so the ways that our physiologies and psychologies are working together and the kind of like, you know, in, in Ayurveda, we would say that every single one of us is made up of all, all of the earth elements. And the combination that I have is different than what you have, Jason, or you, Jeff, or you. And um, so depending on what that combination is, we all need different com different cocktails of foods. And that com combination of elements also dictates our personalities and our propensity to be active and how we burn the calories that we're consuming. Also, a lot of it goes down to digestion. And this is something that is not terribly, like just now, especially in Western cultures, are we starting to recognize the deep, deep importance of having a healthy digestive system. Uh, something that's been maintained by culinary culture across the world for a very long time, but is actually not present for us. Um, we don't use spices, which help to instigate good digestion. We don't have many fermented foods that belong to our culinary culture, like a burger is not a fermented food. <laughs> uh, a pickle that's in a jar, also barely a fermented food, right? And and in general, we have kind of like sterilized and taken all of the like bacteria out of our food system to make it safe. But what we've done then is also started to limit the way that those things enter into our bodies and something like billions of our of the bacteria that are found in in and around us are not of us there are different species that are helping us to survive which is kind of wild when you think about it um so the answer is that it has so much to do and there's no there's no cut and dry answer right like it has so much to do with the different ways that we're processing our food the different ways we're processing our experiences and the ways that our bodies are prepared to do that. The image and imprint of the way that my body does that in an optimal sense might be different than the way that yours does and the use of area. So there's no like visual measure. There's no weight measure. There's no body mass index that can tell us if that's happening correctly. In fact, a body, a body mass index might tell us we're doing great while an Ayurvedic consultation or like a, an examination of digestive health would be like, whoa, you are way off base. So, um, so that's where it's just sort of like general contentment. Like, unfortunately, general contentment is a really big indicator. Like, do I really feel happy? Am I really rested? Am I really like joyful? <laughs> if that's true, then cool. And if it's, if it's really not, or we think it might not be, then we probably can shift some stuff around. <laughs> Are you a spy? Sorry, I thought I'd try that again. I thought if I caught you off guard, you might you might slip. You know how we're trained to say no. I know. What I thought mean? my best shot was to just throw it in there when, when, you, weren't, yeah, when you weren't expecting it. But I'm digging my alibi even deeper, right? right? Yeah. The more I talk. I'm sorry, Jason. Well, just to say, I'm sorry that I don't have a more cut and dry answer for that. But no, the no. truth is that... Yeah. The truth is that um, it's so much more complicated than what we than what we look like or the size and shapes of our bodies or what we're able to do with our bodies, Yeah. Um, which is also a difficult part about being an athlete. Right. Like we sort of think that uh, or being an athlete or just any person. Right. If you can move through the world faster, lighter, with more proficiency, we presume that that's great. But there's also a lot of reasons to believe that 
that's not optimal. And um, that was why I introduced it as a billion dollar question. I, I obviously, yeah. if you knew the answer or anyone knew the answer, they would be a very wealthy person, I think. Right. Yeah. But it yeah. is true. I, I have read up and studied some some stuff on like the biome and how, you know, and how, how much that affects, you know, and how it's shifted and changed and, and you know, in the modern era and how we fighting bacteria and all of that has has really hurt you know, kind of hurt us in a lot of ways. And, you know, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it, yeah, it is interesting with all the science and stuff, though, that we can't figure, you know, we can't figure out like the simple answers, you know, it's kind of sad. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing about science. And that is that like, nature created us. So the idea that we would actually unlock nature with all of our infinite wisdom, we've got to believe that there are a few things that we might just not know. And so that's where it's just, you know, trusting that we've got the answer, like, somewhere deep inside, we have the answer, and we have to trust that thing. And follow the right clues um science may never be able like you know science may never be able to unlock that for us but but you know we know that fresh air is good for us we know that moving through nature is good for us we know when we eat like when you go pick tomatoes on the farm like that feels really good and when your mom cooks you something with a whole you know with all of her love like that feels good there's I don't care if my mom made me a, like a triple butter cookie. The fact that she made it means it's good for me, you know? <laughs> so those things are things that we, that we can trust and, um, and no science would like science, science actually, when you take a look at that science proves that those things are, make sense. But, but does science have to tell us that? So here's a question. Um, how long, how long does it take for, like food to kind of clear, like, come into your system and clear it. So like, let's say you're eating really healthy and you like have a, you know, you're, oh, I'm going to splurge or I'm going to like have the, the cheat or like you eat something, you know, is not going to be good for you. Like, is there sort of a general rule of thumb? Like it's going to be in your system for 24 hours. And you talked a lot about food combining too, right? Well, that depends on how strong your digestive system is and how healthy it is. So in an optimal case, food would enter into your body and take about six to 12 hours. But if your digestive system is, is, weak or if there's a combination of foods that you're, you're consuming that take more time for it to break down um, or if your food is undigested properly then um, the timing is a little different and and i will also say that our bodies don't always eliminate everything that we put into them so many of us even those of us that have been practicing this virtuously for a very long time still have buildup in our digestive system that slows and continues to dampen that so we could be, we could be, unfortunately, um, like there've been two occasions this week where I've gone out with my girlfriends. We've had a bottle of wine. I'm a very lightweight drinker. I'm probably going to be feeling the effects of that for several more days <laughs> <laughs> until I can like drink all of my, like, you know, fennel coriander tea and like get my digestive system going again. <laughs> uh, we could, we could be subject to our less awesome digest, you know, dietary choices for far longer than we would ever have imagined. I think the thing that I want your listeners to walk away from 100% is just that um, there's, there's, you know, for me anyway, something in my experience as an athlete unlocked when I started using real food. And no matter what you're eating out there, whether it's an energy bar or a homemade cookie or a, you know, ramen you made in your thermos, I hope that your listeners are picking something that makes that enhances that experience because it does it makes the through hike better it makes the ride it makes the bike packing trip more memorable more wonderful and um as if a day spent in the backcountry or in nature could be any more wonderful food actually <laughs> does that 
So I hope that that's something that they consider the next time they're picking up whatever's going to fuel them on their way. That's great. I, awesome. Yeah, thanks. I think yep. you're definitely a spy, but yeah. But yeah. <laughs> your secret's safe with us. Yeah. Yeah. No one's telling you. No one's telling you. Well, Lentine, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, is there? Why don't? You, can you let people know how they find you? So I know you mentioned sure. Patreon, but yeah, how can our listeners find you? Yeah. So my website is my name lentinealexis.com. And, um, and you can follow me on Instagram at lentinealexis.com as well. That's really the only social media platform that I, um, that I post on with any frequency because it, Twitter doesn't give me enough space to post full recipes and Facebook is filled with all sorts of other stuff. And I love taking photographs of food. So, um, so those two places are great. And, uh, over Instagram, I share all sorts of other things that are going on from events that I may be attending when we can turn that back on to details about recipe club and, um, and freeform recipes, whatever I'm cooking or wherever I'm going, I'm usually sharing something there. Great. Thanks so Very much. Awesome. Well, Thank you. I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking out some of those recipes for our, you know, our fueling our adventures going ahead. It was a really great talking with yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it nice to meet you all. And thanks yep. for having me. I really appreciate yeah. it. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at adventure us women. That's adventure us women, Jeff at the SoCal hiker or me at the Muir project. Our title track almost there is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. Jeff and I are attempting to summit Mount Rainier next week. Check back in two weeks to see if we make it. As always, thanks for listening.